Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I'm just a poor boy from a poor family. I am not sparing my life from monstrosity. I'm Kev. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> Kev, you all right? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, not bad at all. Thank you very much. It's the weekend, so you know. Yeah, welcome to Album Clash, people. So we start not only a new clash this week, but we start a new season. So Kev, as it's your choice, introduce firstly what, what's the season we're going through and what's the clash we're doing over the next couple of weeks. Okay, so our new season is our City Clash season. So... What we try and do is find two bands from the same city that have some kind of some kind of link between them and um, clash them off. And this is uh, quite an obvious clash, really, and sticks right in our um, in our nineties uh, happy place as well. <laughs> yeah, we have been very nineties for a few weeks. Yeah. So what is it then? So the clash is uh, Portishead's Dummy versus Massive Attack's Sophomore Effort Protection. Nice use of the word sophomore. Thank you. And uh, what city connects these two albums? It would be the city of Bristol. Indeed, in the southwest of England. There are some more connections between Massive Attack and Portishead than just Bristol, though. Indeed, the um, well, essentially, there's been collaboration between the various members at various times. Mm-hmm. So Jeff Barrow from Portishead, he actually worked as an engineer on the production of Massive Attack's debut album, Blue Lines. Here's one I thought was interesting. Someone that connects these two acts, Nena Cherry. Nana Cherry plays a huge role in, in both, both these bands' formation and uh, these albums, really. She does indeed, uh, and we'll come on to that, certainly for, for Portishead today. But yeah, uh, that's a, it's a good clash, this, and um, I was excited when you announced it last week, and I say excited to go through the concept of famous musical cities. Should we do some Can't Get You Out of My Head? I think we should. Okay. Do you have any shite that you would uh, like to get out of your head? I do. Um, So my shite this week, well, I'll explain the reason behind this. So we have recently procured a puppy named Toots after Toots Hibber from Toots and the Maytals. And we found that she really likes uh, Smooth FM. Oh, God. Oh, no. Yeah, she's a big, she's a big fan of Smooth, <laughs> Smooth FM. So, unfortunately, earlier this week when I got the puppy out the crate, Shania Twain's awful song, You're Still the One. Um, <laughs> not even one of, like, the upbeat. Yeah, no, was, being, was being played, and it stuck in my head for a couple of days. So, oh, God. Yeah, that's that's the shite I've had in my head. Well, once again, thoughts and prayers, mate. I sympathise wholeheartedly <laughs> with that. I have no shite stuck in my head this week. I have had a shite-free week. Not in that way. I'm not bunged up or anything, but, um, you know, everything's quite regular. <laughs> but uh, no no shite stuck in my head. Oh, okay. So, yeah, what about your what about your tip of the hat? So my tip of the hat is something that was released as a single a few weeks previously, but um, is relevant uh, because of the release of the new public service broadcasting album, Bright Magic, mm-hmm. and the song I'd like to 
have my huge tip of the hat to is Blue Heaven from that album. Magnificent song. Featuring Andrea Casablanca from the band Grr, <laughs> um, which is um, enjoyable to say. But it sounds, the only way I can describe it is like, it's the Cocteau Twins with Good Kings of Leon. <laughs> with a bit more Krautrock influence in there, I would say. Yeah, you know. It's a great tune. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. We, we've already highlighted our absolute love and adoration for public service broadcasting. Yeah. They've, they've come out with another cracker. It's a really good album. And who knows, we might do some public service broadcasting at some point relatively soon on this clash, but uh, wait and see. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that's a great tune. Really good pick. Um, my choice also is new. It is the song This Fractured Mind by uh, the New York group Nation of Language. It is the second single from their forthcoming second album, A Way Forward. I think the album comes out in November. What I will say about it, it is a glorious slice of Vince Clark-inspired 80s synth pop with more than a hint of craft work thrown into boot. It is right in my wheelhouse. I love it. Yeah, you describing describing that as like, I think these are all things Tim. Yes, the, and the first album's really, really good as well. Uh, that's very Krautrock influence. It's uh, they're a really good band, and I'm really looking forward to the album. But yeah, this fractured mind is a really, really good tune. Class. Well, um, yes, it will be added to the um, certainly the YouTube playlist. <laughs> How um, are we doing with the Spotify one, Kev? Um, it's in rumination stage. <laughs> The concept of it exists in your head. Yeah, as a a, a task, I have I have considered it. Um, <laughs> I, I may may well return to it. Sorry, folks, we'll do it. We'll do it, and um, well, Kev will do it at some point. But yeah, yeah. It'll, I'll stick it on the on the YouTube playlist. Uh, we'll obviously we'll tweet out the links as usual. Check them out. Good tunes. Yeah, cool. All right, um, top trumps time, I guess. Yes, and. Well, I've leveled things up over the last couple of weeks, so uh, it's uh, it's a, it's a big clash this week. It is. Um, I'm nervy. Yeah, I think you should be. So I am gonna, as last time, break with tradition. I'm not going sales first. I'm going critics. Okay. Because I'm really confident on this. Rolling Stone, four out of five. Ditto. Mm. All music, five out of five. Four out of five. Oof. NME, 9 out of 10. 8 out of 10. Get in! Come on! Right, and here's the one to see it then. Pitchfork, 9.5 out of 10. No Pitchfork review. Well, there you go. I've kicked your <laughs> ass there. Brilliant. <laughs> I win. Okay, that's a, we're off to a good start here. Uh, let's go with some charts. Okay. Okay. In the UK, dummy reached number two. Number four. Ooh, okay. I'm surprised that it was that low, to be mm, honest. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. In the US, on the Billboard Hot 100, Dummy reached 79. So on the US Heat Seekers albums, it was 19. I have no idea what that is. I'm assuming it's not the full Billboard chart. Yeah. I think it's like the equivalent of the old Top of the Pops, Top 40 Breakers. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right. So I'm two for two. I'm doing well here. All right. Now I am going to go sales. Okay. Dummy has sold more than 4 million copies. Yeah, you, you're kicking me ass there. What have you got on protection? About two million. Which is good. You know? Yeah. But it's not four million. Uh, right, so the obvious place to go next is certifications. What have you got in the UK? So it's two times platinum in the UK. Three times platinum in the UK. 
What about, uh, let's go Europe. Europe, I am platinum. Two times platinum. Have you got anything in the US? So, uh, US, 292,000 copies. It hasn't given a certification on Wiki. Okay, so uh, Dummy sold 600,000 in the US and was certified gold. So, uh, another resounding victory here. And I think uh, you are now fucked. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I do think so. All right, we'll do the other two. We'll go awards. All right, so... Uh, Portishead were nominated for the Best Breakthrough Act at the MTV European Music Awards in 1995, as they were for the Brit Awards in 1995. Dummy won the 1995 Mercury Music Prize. How about protection? Any awards? So two, Best uh, Dance Act at the Brits, Mm -hmm. and also won... The highly coveted, uh, v- highly coveted award of the VMAs. Best video. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's a good video. But... It is a great video. We'll talk about it, I'm sure, next week. Well, so you've won two. I've won one. Uh, as a consolation, I'll, I'll concede. I'll give you that one. Yeah, because you've absolutely nailed me. Eh? I have. Uh, Lists is the last one. On the 2003 and 2012 Rolling Stone Top 500 list, uh, Dummy was listed number 419. Then in 2020, it shot all the way up to 191. Wow. Uh, indeed. Uh, and the NME in 2013, they stuck it at 168. So this uh, protection got 51 on the Rolling Stones' best 100 albums of the 90s and is also been listed in the book 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. Indeed, it has because I own that book. But uh, not on the overall top 500 Rolling no. Stone. Okay, so uh, 5-1. Yeah. You've been absolutely mullered there, Kev. And I'm surprised as well. I'm surprised. I expected Dummy to win, but I'm surprised it was such a comfortable victory. Yeah. Okay, so it's probably, uh, should we start going through the background of Dummy? Yeah, I think we should, because I, th- I think we'll... We we start with a very 80s thing on how the band even got started. We do indeed, yeah, yeah. So just a couple of the, the facts as we usually do. So as we've said, it was Portishead's debut album. It was released on the 22nd of August 1994 on Go Beat Records. It was produced by the band themselves and uh, engineer Dave McDonald. It was recorded at State of Art and Coach House Studios in Bristol, between 1993 and 1994. And yeah, as Kev said, people in the in the UK and of a certain age may be familiar with the uh, Enterprise Allowance Scheme, which was set up in the late 80s by the Conservative government to help people who were sort of unemployed but wanted to set up their own business, basically. It gave them an extra, uh, some extra money per week to support, you know, on, on top of their on top of their job seekers allowance. Apparently it's 40 quid a week you got to set up your own business, which in the end, that's a, that's a fair old, fair old whack. Um, yep. Would you like to know some of the luminaries who were, who took advantage of the enterprise scheme? Please. So the founders of Viz. <laughs> Brilliant. And um, perennial talking head and... Um, Podcast fave, Alan McGee. I have two more as well. Yeah, you're quite right. McGee used it as part of setting up uh, Creation Records. I, there are two more as well. Both artists, uh, Tracy Emin 
and someone who we've spoken about before, director of Dreadful Music Video with Blur and founding member of the even more reprehensible Fat Les, Damien Hurst. Indeed. <laughs> I mean, could we have hit? Could we have hit any more nineties um, no. boxes there? <laughs> Damien Hurst, McGee, Viz Magazine, and Tracy Emin. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so, why has that got any relevance to Portishead's dummy? So, the founding members of Portishead were singer-songwriter Beth Gibbons and DJ and producer Jeff Barrow. They met uh, at a job centre on a course for the Enterprise Allowance Scheme back in 1990. Through that, they basically both discovered they had a shared passion for music. So they basically developed a rapport and started working together. And whilst they were working on their initial ideas for songs, as I mentioned earlier, Jeff Barrow had been recruited by Massive Attack's then manager, Cameron McVeigh, to work as an engineer on Blue Lines. Cameron McVeigh was, I think perhaps still is, married to Nena Cherry. And so Barrow was then also brought on board to work on Nena Cherry's second album, Homebrew. And it was during that time that a lot of the demos for what would become Dummy were written and recorded in <laughs> Nena Cherry and Cameron Vey's kitchen. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, when we get when we get into talking about protection, the McVeigh Cherry household, <laughs> literally household, plays quite big roles in in the development. Yeah, it does, it does indeed. So yeah, basically, as we said at the start, Nena Cherry and Cameron McVeigh play a, a big role in both of these albums. They actually even helped to fund a lot of the the early recording sessions for Dummy. So yeah, really instrumental here. So in 1991, the first of the songs that would go on to Dummy was completed. That was It Could Be Sweet. That was recorded at Coach House Studios. During those sessions, uh, Jeff Barrow met the jazz session guitarist, Adrian Utley. They basically developed an, an immediate friendship with each other, started sharing ide- ideas and started collaborating. So in a 2019 interview in The Observer, Adrian Utley said, I remember somebody opening the door upstairs and me hearing it could be sweet. I was like, fuck me, what is that? Just hearing the sub bass and Beth's voice. It was unbelievable. Like a whole new world that was really exciting and vital. It was a really exciting time because there was this amalgamation of ideas and a lifetime of separate discovery with all of us. And the fact that we brought it to each other, it was like a new love. Of that same meeting, Jeff Barrow said it was like a light bulb coming on. And through that collaboration, so Adrian Utley then joined Portishead as a full-time member, basically. And so through that collaboration, there was a real diverse range of influences that came together to form what would be on Dummy. Well, yeah, and I know that it sort of said that Barrow taught Utley around sampling and the more electronic sides of it, and Utley introduced theremins and the, well, I hadn't heard of this instrument before, the cymbalom, which obviously you definitely heard on Dummy because there's some quite classically East European sounds um, that emerge through the album. Yeah, indeed. So um, they also had a a sort of shared love of classic 60s and 70s film soundtracks. Influences the likes of Ennio Morricone, Lalo Schifrin in particular. Oh, yeah. Very much come to bear on some of the more famous tracks on Dummy. But because of Jeff Barrow's hip hop influences, and like you said, 
his fondness of sampling. A lot of the recording techniques were also really important to how it sounded. So Jeff Barrow and Adrian would basically record the backing tracks onto vinyl so that they could then put it on a sample, cut it up, put it on a turntable, sorry, cut it up and, and sample it. Not only that, though, because that was that's very commonly used in, in a lot of hip-hop recordings. Not only that, they, they deliberately wore out the vinyl to give it that more authentic aged sound. Didn't they skateboard over it? Or... <laughs> yeah, they did. So this is Jeff Barrow from the New York Times a couple of years ago. We were desperately influenced by old records and we were deliberately influenced by hip-hop. That would lead to us recording our own sessions and then cutting them to vinyl, then put them on a studio floor, walking across them and using them like skateboards. <laughs> they also used a lot of broken equipment to sort of help create that sort of lo-fi sound that you hear on, on the album. Mm-hmm. So again, Jeff Barrow, it was very easy to record instruments that sound like instruments, but to actually have that kind of distress and weight and everything else, that's what we're into. And without going too much into into what I think of things, boy, it's effective. Yeah. I mean, it, and obviously we're going to talk about this when we get into the long grass of the album, but it has, even now, there's nothing else that sounds like this album. Mm-hmm. It's so unique. And they've used so many different techniques and mm-hmm. amalgamated into this amazing uh, smorgasbord of musical influences. Yeah, smorgasbord is a great way of putting it. Absolutely right. I was actually going to go with melange, but I decided <laughs> to go with uh, smorgasbord. Cornucopia? Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> so... One of the other unique aspects of the recording of the album was how Beth Gibbons put her vocals down. So she was never present at the at the recording sessions. Sorry, let's be more specific. She was never present at the recording of the of the music of the backing tracks. She much preferred to write her lyrics to completed tracks. So there's a 1998 documentary on on YouTube called Welcome to Portishead. And in that, Adrian only said, we usually start off in here. It'll be us in the studio. Beth won't be here. We'll work on backing tracks and then send them to Beth. And then she'll write the lyrics and melody on top of that. Now, here's something you can understand why Beth Gibbons wasn't present at all those recording sessions. Jeff Barrow from that same documentary. For us, a song can take up to eight months. The whole picture (laughs) from the beginning to end has got to be right. So every angle is covered. It's complete. Nothing is missing. It's really important. Even the silence between the tracks we timed. We're pretty obsessive about everything. Fucking hell. I'll say it's taking you eight months to do one song. <laughs> Fucking hell. Like that. I mean, the um, 50s uh, producers of Sun Studios are going, what the actual fuck are you up to, lad? <laughs> We'd have banged out about 20 albums in that time. I mean, imagine if they were managed by Murray Wilson. fucking no chance but I think well firstly that attention to detail and that precision again has a really big effect on what you hear on the album and to be honest you hear that precision and care and craft throughout all of their albums really that's exactly what I was going to say and I also think it's part of the reason why they've never been especially prolific in terms of output and never felt the pressure to be particularly prolific in terms of output. They've always been and continue to be completely driven by their own 
their own interests, if you like, and they won't be rushed by record companies. Yeah, but I mean, and you know, better to get it right mm-hmm. than to release shite. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, just one more thing before we start going through artwork, you'll notice that the majority of quotes I read out are from Jeff Barrow or Adrian Utley. And I actually only have one quote from Beth Gibbons, which kind of explains why. So she doesn't give interviews, basically. She's she's not exactly reclusive, but she certainly shies away from the, the media spotlight and always has. And in that 1998 documentary I talked about, she says, I don't particularly want to be a pop star. I don't want people to think that I'm something I'm not. I don't want them to think that I'm mysterious or interesting when I'm just the same as they are. So she's very much all about writing the songs and singing and that'll do me and performing them. But the rest of it, she's never been interested in. And so, yeah, even as always happens, a lot of 20th anniversary, 25th anniversary reviews, interviews, etc. She's never involved in those things, basically. So I have no further quotes from Beth Gibbons beyond that one I've just read. Well, I remember seeing, um, like, when they came back towards the back end of the sort of 2000s, whatever that decade was called, the noughties. Yeah, like, or something else equally shit. Yeah, I never liked that um, moniker for it. But, like, I remember them performing at Glastonbury, and... It was it was an amazing it was an amazing performance and everything, mm-hmm. but just on stage she looked so painfully shy and she was brilliant and her voice was stunning. But like she didn't look like a pop star. She didn't look like someone who's absolutely buzzing to be in that environment. Yeah, exactly. And I say that continues to be the case. Uh, so I think well, as we record, it's the eighth of October today. Just last night on uh, the BBC Six Music on Steve Lamack show, the Thursday Night Album Club was a full playthrough of Dummy. Um, Bastard stole our idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> and plus they've got the rights to play it. Oh, well. yeah, fuckers. <laughs> By the way, yeah, if anyone's wondering, but you just talk about our music, you never even play a single second of it. No, because we don't want to get sued. So, soz. <laughs> Yeah, we do not have deep enough pockets to um, to afford any litigation. No, exactly. But anyway, uh, that was done by Jeff Barrow. So yeah, as you said, Beth Gibbons has always been quite shy. And uh, well, some of the songs that we'll go through perhaps speak to why uh, when you get into some of the lyrics, but we'll come to that. Before we do, I have nothing else on background, so I'm good to go on to artwork. Okay. So what do you think of the artwork? It's not very inspiring, I would say. It is not. I'd say of the um, the albums that we've done thus far, it's one of the weaker efforts. And I, I understand that the the image on the front is from essentially the film that got on their deal. Yeah. So they made a film which was called To Kill a Dead Man. It was a, a sort of short film, a spy movie, directed by the band themselves. And as Kev said, they... they the soundtrack they recorded for that is what got them their their record deal. And the cover photo is a picture of Beth Gibbons from that film. Yeah, and even and we, we love a we love a font chat. Like it's not a it's not an inspiring font. <laughs> even I said can't even say much about the font, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's not great font work. It's not great um, font work. So it it's a very recognizable cover, but that's because of how successful the album was. Yes, exactly. Like it's it's not a it's not an inspiring cover. 
it's not an inspiring cover, nor does it really give you much of a clue about about what lies within. And that sounds a bit of an odd thing to say, but we've said before that in some cases, album covers do provide that. And I go back to Sgt. Peppers as the example, really. And um, I mean, obviously, if you compare any album cover to Sgt. Peppers, it's it's very difficult. But you know what I mean? There's, there's not really any any clues as to what you might be in store, what might be in store if you stick it on the record deck. Mm-hmm. What I will say, if I was looking for someone to replace uh, David Arnold for doing Bond soundtracks, you could do a lot worse than Jeff Barrow and, um, and Adrian, Adrian Utley. Utley. You, you could. I'm not surprised that they're like the short film they did was a, was a spy film because yeah. there's so much of this that's, you know, well, we'll get into it, but there is, yeah, there, there is, but, but, yeah, I, I'm going to come back to the uh, the idea of Bond themes and Bond music next week. Okay, so uh, just before we do start going through the tracks, how did you first discover Dummy? Um, I discovered Dummy through my elder sister. She played the album loads, and it was something that had always. I'd always appreciated hearing it um, when she would uh, drive us to school in her Fiat Uno. <laughs> Which you've mentioned before. <laughs> I have indeed. Um, there was some cracking stuff on that tape deck. And yeah, from the point where my sister bought the album, which I think was relatively, or at least got it onto a tape <laughs> for the car. Yeah, it was relatively um, soon after its release. So a bit later for me, I have to be honest, which is strange because I was very much into a lot of Portishead's contemporaries and in particular the, the band we're going to be talking about next week. So I was very aware of, of Portishead and, and the more famous songs from this album, but I never got into it until, well, I've mentioned this before when we were going through air, it was, it was my, well, my girlfriend, who's now my wife. It's one of her favorite albums. And when we first got together, it was on the record deck. Well, the CD player a lot. Did she have a multi-disc, a, like a changer thing? She did, yes, indeed. <laughs> ah, you see, that was always a treat. That one, yeah. And so the three that were offered in it were Moon Safari, Dummy, and less enjoyably Big Calm by More Cheaper. But you know, Ooh. yeah. I, well, I know, I know your wife, and yeah, she, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but Dummy was very much one, another one of those. Like, why the fucking hell wasn't I listening to this seven years ago? This is brilliant. So anyway, spoilers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm ready to start going through the tracks. Yeah, I'm absolutely ready. Okay, uh, we start with Mr. Rons, which is a word that fans of Captain Scarlet and other Jerry Anderson puppet-themed sci-fi shows from the 60s will be well aware of what that means. The uh, the baddies from Captain Scarlet were called the Mr. Rons. They were from Mars, weren't they? I've no idea. I've never yeah. really watched Captain Scarlet. But you never saw them. There was just like two circles. Like part of the Olympic logo had broken off and floated out to sea. <laughs> it was one of those like jog. Like merchandise that you buy, like <laughs> about a mile away from the stadium. <laughs> sure, that's got enough rings on it. Yeah, definitely, mate. <laughs> Don't buy counterfeit merchandise. It um, what well, do actually? It's a lot cheaper. Yeah, 
I'm sorry, if you've been to watch a band and you've not bought... £5 t-shirts outside. Exactly. The, like, last year for... Ever. Maybe a month. No, 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 no. Some, some of my best t-shirts lasted me forever. Oh, no, well, as you well know, I still have my uh, last broadcast hoodie, which is still going, what are we talking, nearly 20 years later? T-shirts are fiver, hoodies are tenner. Posters, seven quid. Yeah, posters, which was like for a poster. It's like, mate, I can get a T-shirt for a fiver. I'm going to spend more than that on a fucking poster. I mean, I know it's a big poster, but like... It is still just paper. Yes. I mean, glossy paper. Like, you've not done it like one of those protests at the football where, like, you've printed off on A4 and are holding it above your hat. Indeed, no. <laughs> anyway, as usual, we have digressed somewhat. Oh, Mr. Ons. <laughs> Mr. Ons, yeah. So as I said, not only is it inspired by the TV show Captain Scarlet, but specifically by the Mr. Ons theme written by Barry Gray. So Jeff Barrow said in an interview with KEXP, no idea, in 2019, Barry Gray and his orchestra had recorded the music for Thunderbirds and Stingray and Captain Scarlet. They were puppets, but they had the most amazing spacecrafts and dark music, and they had a full massive orchestral score. Captain Scarlet's main enemy was the Mysterons. Somebody had a Barry Gray 12-inch. It was the theme from Thunderbirds on the front, and on the other side was the theme from the Mysterons. So, yeah... If you've ever heard the theme from Mr. Ons and then you listen to Mr. Ons alongside it, you can very much tell that inspiration. The use of the theremin oh, yeah. on this track is absolutely from it. And I love a theremin. It sounds great. It sounds so sinister. And haunting yes. as well. Unfortunately, like I was dying to digress while she was talking to just, to just say that Whilst I'm not a huge fan of the uh, Thunderbirds theme tune, the Stingray one is an absolute banger. It's a belter. Although I hated the Aquamarina song that they played at the end, that used to really wind me up. Yeah, but you know, I was okay with that because it was the end of the it was the end of Stingray anyway. And Batfink was on next. Exactly. I was going off to do other things soon soon afterwards, so I could put up with Aquamarina. But like we we will actually have to talk about this song. <laughs> I mean, the way the, the theremin and the way it's mixed together, it's such a unique sound. And Beth Gibbons' voice is so delicate and fragile in in, yeah. in the mix. And it's like this is this is definitely unfortunately, as um regular listeners will be able to attest to, I'm gonna repeat myself loads in this. It's such an atmospheric and it's just cinematic in its scope. And there the hive mind has its first <laughs> success of the night. <laughs> so we said that a lot when we went through uh, Moon Safari, and we're going to say it a lot again. And, and unsurprising when we talked about some of those influences. For me, well, you've got that slightly discordant guitar part, which is very Morricone. But the Fender Rhodes organ is what absolutely makes this. And it's not the only track on this album where that is the case. It is such a distinctive sound the sort of tremolo style it's just wonderful the drums are great as well i think they really capture the essence of what became known as the trip hop sound you know what i mean yeah uh, and i mean yeah the it's we talk about when when we're reviewing these albums about openers and how you set the scene and this absolutely sets you up to say this is going to be something this is something very different yeah it's huge in its scope and it's prepare for a ride 
yeah, I'm taking I'm taking you on a journey here. Yeah, absolutely. That is that is a, a really good way of putting it because it, yeah, it is very unusual. It's very disarming as an opener to an album, but in a really good way. It's like it, it piques your interest. Oh, okay, you know, yeah. What's next? As you said, let let's go on this journey. If you open yourself up to it, what what have we got in store? A really good start. I'm a big fan of Mister Ons. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a great opener. Okay, shall we go on to Sour Times? Yeah, I think we should. All right. So this was the second single from the album. It was initially released on the 1st of August, 94, and reached number 57 in the UK. They re-released it in April of 95, following the success of Glory Box. That time it reached number 13 in the UK. It also reached number 53 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in the US, the only song of theirs to make that chart. And... The main theme of the song is built around a very prominent sample of Lalo Schifrin's Danube incident. And again, it's it's really unusual to anything you'd heard, even stuff that their contemporaries were doing. It's really, well, it, it is cinematic. I can't think of a better way to, to describe it. And that the sample helps. Obviously, Lalo Schifrin, very famous for writing themes for... So he did, obviously, Mission Impossible. He, he did Bullet as well, didn't he? Oh, yeah, he did. The Bullet one is obviously one of the, the most famous, yeah. Enter the Dragon, that was one of his as well, was it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so anyway, it's that Lalo Schifrin. I just think it's, it's just inspired to say, we're going to take that sample from a really quite obscure track from, from an Argentine composer, and we're going to create a pop song out of it. And we're going to not only create a pop song, we're going to create a top 20 single in the UK and it's going to be on the Billboard Hot 100 mm-hmm. chart. It's just visionary. Yeah. My notes were melancholic, wistful, beautiful. It is beautiful. Uh, so it's hard to know exactly what the song's about, as I said, because of the paucity of quotes from, from Beth Gibbons. I see it as... Well, you could you could look at it obviously and say it's about a breakup. I don't see it that way. I see it as a critique of traditional expectations of womanhood and you know the patriarchy and, and misogyny and the institutions of marriage, etc. Lyrics like covered by the blind belief that fantasies of sinful screams, bear the facts, assume the die, end the vows, no need to lie, enjoy, take a ride, take a shot now. I mean, we went through telling stories last week. And I said about the heavy use of metaphor in lyrics and the non-sort of literal nature of the lyrics. That's absolutely the case here. But they're really powerful to me. No, the the lyrics are incredibly powerful. What I've like, I've literally just written this as um I was thinking thinking about the song. And we talked about spy films. They like just thinking of that opening massively brings into mind for me the Ipcris file. Oh yeah. Great shout. And and that sort of that's like I'm not even quite sure what the the sound is. So that's the Lalo Schifrin sample. It sounds like a detuned piano almost. Yeah, yeah. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's just it's the way that they've complemented that sample with the bass, the guitar, the drum part, which is really gentle, but just sort of helps nudge things along. It's a, it's another really clever track this for me. Yeah. And as you said, Beth Gibbons' voice has got a sinister quality to it, but it's also really soulful. This is um, this is a really good tune. It's it's great. Okay, the next track is called Strangers. 
It contains a sample of a song called Elegant People by The Weather Report and also Wait Please by Eddie Harris. My first note on this, the bass is fucking huge. That kick drum literally just punches Mm -hmm. through your chest. It's massive. So you get that for a bit and then it breaks down and all you've got is that guitar sample and Beth Gibbons' voice. But then it kicks back in and, and her voice still just, it just cuts through everything. All the, Even mm-hmm. that massive bass drum, it's, it's her voice is given center stage. The way the samples are used here, that are just sort of snippets interwoven into the breakdowns. It reminds me very much of science fiction, Uncle's first album, which made heavy use of that style. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's good. I like it. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a huge opening to this song. Mm. And I think throughout it, it's really sinister sounding. It's threatening. Like the way I described it is that there's a feeling of malevolence. There's a malevolent threat throughout the song that sort of underlines and is as though there's a threat to Beth Gibbons' voice. If the way the two interweave together is, yeah. is beautiful and works so well. And the the little samples, like the jazz film sample interludes, work really well to break up that malevolent sound, but you still know it's there. Yep. I, I think that's a really good way of putting it. Malevolent sound, actually. I think that's a uh, a perfect way to, to capture the essence of this song. Uh, and as I said, that kick drum just never fails to just, yeah. you know, bang. It's it's great. Okay, flying through here. Shall we go on? I think we should, yeah. All right, next track is It Could Be Sweet. As I mentioned earlier, this is the first song completed for the album, uh, and it's just Beth Gibbons and Jeff Barrow. It's... Definitely a lot more pared back than the first three tracks. For me, you can tell it's from an earlier iteration of the band. And I don't mean that as a criticism. It's just, it, it, it sounds more contained. It's simpler, but but that's yeah. not a criticism. That's a better word to use, simpler. Yeah. No, it's not It's not a criticism at all. I think the, the sort of organ part here is really beautiful. Really, again, it's haunting. It's mm-hmm. sinister. It's... The way Beth Gibbons' voice glides between the notes rather than sort of, you know, hitting them every time, she really mm-hmm. does glide between them. Gives it even more of a brooding quality than the three you've already heard. Yeah. Her voice is, her voice sounds so gentle and sweet. I mean, it could be sweet. And this, the song works as a nice counterpoint to to me anyway, to the the brooding intensity of the first the first three songs that you've had. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think you're right. So, so again, get your bingo cards out, guys. It's a bit of a pace change. Quite a welcome one after that intensity you just talked about in the first three tracks. It's a really good song. I think more than anything on this album, this sounds the most like the stuff that Massive Attack were producing. Yeah, without question. And again, I think that speaks to what I said, that you can sort of tell that this was a song recorded before Adrian Utley came on board, before the sound became that much more expansive and ambitious. Yeah. But again, not a criticism. I do like it could be sweet, but I have nothing else to say about it. No, neither do I. All right, then. Let's go on to Wandering Star. Uh, not a cover of the um, Lee Van Cleef helmed song. Not, it wasn't, not Lee Van Cleef. Who was it? It was uh, Lee Marvin. Lee Marvin. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah. From, uh, from you, you can do that again if you want. I will do. No, actually, no. I'm happy to live with the mistake. And leave it in there. <laughs> okay. now, now I'm quite taken by the idea of Lee Van Cleef singing I was born at the Wandering Star. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I prefer if Tuco was singing it. <laughs> 
right, Wandering Star. The sort of saxophone riff that, that, that comes in instead of a, an instrumental part, if you like, is a sample of uh, Magic Mountain by Eric Burden and War, which, by the way, is a fucking tune. It's brilliant. Alpha. So uh, in terms of the use of that sample, here's Jeff Barrow. He said, Wandering Star needed a solo, so I just kind of scratched the start of Magic Mountain. I wasn't ever really a scratch DJ as such. Maybe not, Jeff, but you did it really effectively here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're very good at it. So this is one where I really do want to call out the lyrics. This has to be a song about depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let me read some lyrics. Please could you stay a while to share my grief. It's such a lovely day to have to always feel this way. And the time that I will suffer less is when I never have to wake. Wandering stars for whom it is reserved, the blackness, the darkness forever. Wow. Well, and if you think that this song is about depression, then the, how how do you you even describe it? The encompassing bass sound kind of is... And like in terms of like a, a feeling of overwhelming anxiety or depression, it's yeah. like it's insistent, it won't go away. And it yeah. works so well with the balance of the song. And like, again, the sweetness of of Beth Gibbons voice, like, so it's really downbeat, but you've got this mm-hmm. like a like a songbird or something uh, sort of chirruping around That's this depression. Really, really well put. So it, it, everything you've just said, is spot on about the tone of the song, perfectly complementing the lyrics. This song perfectly encapsulates, to me, what it feels like to be in a depressive state mm-hmm. because it is that that relentless, almost anxiety-raising bass line that drives everything forward in a, in, in, in a, in a height of... In, in a sense of sort of heightened, you know, perception, if you like. Yeah. It, it does it really does give me that sort of sense of being in a mental fog and then like you said Beth Gibbons voice she sings it so beautifully but the, the lyrics are so heartbreaking and then at the end you get the Hammond organ that comes in mm-hmm. and it's just gorgeous it's like it's soothing yeah after, after everything that's gone before I find this piece of music incredibly moving I really do I think it's wonderful. It is. It it is a an absolutely wondrous piece of work. The the whole thing, it's 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 amazing. I mean, I think the listeners are really enjoying the level of debate that is occurring. <laughs> <on Twitch. laughs> I mean, even more than usual. This is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I love Wandering Star. I, I don't want to. I don't want to dwell too long on it because um, it it really does strike a chord with me. This. Mm-hmm. All right, then. It's a fire. Well, are we going through It's a Fire? I have got notes on It's a Fire, but I don't think we should. We should include it. But I really like it. Well, we, we, we may well be able to have a bit of a debate then. Oh, interesting. So let's stop being cryptic. For listeners in Europe and the UK and listeners who have the vinyl copy, It's a Fire does not appear on the album. So as we always go through the original UK release, we shouldn't go through It's a Fire. But you've just said we might have a debate. <laughs> should have just kept me gobshut, shouldn't I? <laughs> yeah, you should. It's fine. It's a bit of a nothing song. It doesn't go anywhere. Okay. I like it. So it's written by Beth Gibbons. I think the simplicity of the backing track, simple beat, simple bass line that repeats over and over, 
allows her voice even more than everything we've heard before. Her voice is the only thing that comes through here with a real hi-fi quality. Everything else is really pared back. And that strikes me straight away. The Hammond organ again, I think it's got a real sort of gospel blues feel to this. Well, I've written it, lyrics again. So let it be known for what we believe in. I can see no reason for it to fail because this life is a farce. I can't breathe through this mask like a fool. So breathe on, sister, breathe on. Heartbreakingly beautiful. I mean, I suppose what I will have to admit to, there's a possibility here that because it's not a song that I am au fait with because yeah. I have the UK, I have the UK version. So hearing it, it just it didn't work for me because I was mentally expecting uh, Numb to be the next song. Okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll hold my hand up and say that. No, I can understand that because I've got this on vinyl as well, and, and very similarly to you, that my natural thing is that well, Numb is is, is what follows on from mm-hmm. Wonder Star, but I like it. <laughs> well, fair, fair enough. Like on the listen through, listen through. Sorry, I've had uh, this week. It just it never really grabbed me. Listens through, surely not listen throughs. No, that's just all kinds of wrong. <laughs> it's just, no, sorry. <laughs> One thing I would say from those lyrics I read out: "This life is a farce. I can't breathe through this mask like a fool. So breathe on, sister." I'm surprised this hasn't been adopted as the anthem of the anti-lockdown nonsense. <laughs> Let's hope they never listen to this podcast and think, that's a great idea, because it would ruin the song for me forever. Well, because obviously, like, we've, we've got loads of anti-vaxxers who listen to us because we've um, we've clearly been uh, promoting Invermectin and um, not calling them absolute fucking blurts. Listen, Kev, Kirsty Allsop might be our biggest fan. We might just not know about it. Well, she can fuck off. Like, I'm glad she ran out of petrol. <laughs> uh, I'm not explaining that. You just, uh, people that don't know who Kirsty Allsop thinks think you're just uh, being mean to an innocent woman there. <laughs> no. Shall we now go on to Numb? Yes. <laughs> All right. So, Numb, if you've got the vinyl, Numb starts side two. And for people who are wondering why I've said that in such a sharp voice, that's the fucking third take of saying that's a very simple sentence. I can definitely attest to that. <laughs> um, this is not a cover of the U2 song from the year before that featured on Zeropa. Although I do like that song. It's a really good song. Mm-hmm. So is this. <laughs> yeah, yes. This is, I mean, I can remember the first time I heard this because obviously it was one of this is one of the singles from it. And it was absolutely revolutionary when it came out. Yeah, it, it sounds like it sounded like nothing else. No, indeed. It so it was indeed the debut single. Uh so it was released on the 13th of June 94. It didn't chart. I think this is the first Portis Head song I heard. I seem to recall them playing it on Jules Holland. Yeah, I think I think they did. By this time in '94, Jules Holland was very much part of my my Friday night entertainment. So yeah, the, the way the drums and the sort of scratching come in on this again, it's really distinctive. Particularly that sort of snare drum, which sounds well. I've said it sounds like someone banging an empty oil barrel. <laughs> <laughs> and again, it's not a bad thing. So Adrian Utley on that, he said. It sounded so heavy when we first did it. I remember being really into it and taking it on cassette to a session I did with Paul Rogers from Free and Jeff Beck. (laughs) And they super didn't get it. 
I mean, wow, I'm really shocked by that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they said that the snare drum sounded like a tin can. I mean, I've just told you that it's a fucking oil barrel. But anyway, I was like, yeah, wicked. It does. So for me, this gets to the heart of everything I really like about Paul. This said and everything I really like about this album. It's it's really sinister sounding. It's proper moody. It is, isn't it? Well, you can imagine like this soundtrack and walking in the wrong part of town mm-hmm. or walking in walking into the wrong bar at the wrong time. So do you know what? You're right. Do you know what it sort of reminds me of? And listen, it's the organ part that gives me that that link. Ghost Town. Yeah, I can, see, I can see where you're coming from with that. By the specials, for anyone that doesn't know. What I love about the organ part is that they've filtered out the low frequencies to give it a really jagged, tinny sound mm-hmm. to it. And um, it unsettles you. It does unsettle you. It, yeah, absolutely. And again, Beth Gibbon's voice sounds really brilliant. It cuts through that menacing tone and sounds at the same time threatening but also angelic. Yeah, I I think that's a really nice way of putting it. And with that, shall we move on from Numb to Rhodes? Where we're going, we don't need Rhodes. (laughs) That's staying in the show. (laughs) Of course it was. (laughs) Okay, so this is sort of named after the instrument that is the absolute centrepiece of the song. Uh, I go refer again, of course, to the Fender Rhodes organ. I say, of course, like, yes, of course, everyone knows. Yeah, it's a Fender Rhodes. God, it's just a beautiful sound. It is. I mean, the whole the whole thing works so well. Like, that, that really low-key start, mm-hmm. and then you build up, and Beth Gibbon's voice sounds amazing. It's just beautifully produced, really. It is beautifully produced. Yes, it is. So it's one that very much is inspired by cinema and by film soundtracks. So Jeff Barrow and Adrian Utley said of it, so Jeff Barrow first, it was kind of based on when the little girl gets shot in Assault on Precinct 13 by the ice cream van. There's a theme that goes with it. It's a Fender Rhodes and it's really wicked. Adrian Utley said, that's John Carpenter. He was super switched on to just emotion, not any musicality really, all his music was made because he's the director. It's pitched perfectly. I mean, this never, ever fails to stop me in my tracks. I, I completely agree. So I mentioned the roads that sounds just meltingly beautiful. But you've got the bass line again. You've got the guitar. Those are all essential cogs in the machine. And the, the strings. <laughs> exactly. They are just so poignant and so just gorgeous. I, I just want to sing the last line of the... not going to sing it, obviously. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I just want to say the last line of the chorus. From this moment, how can it feel this wrong? It drips of grief and of mourning. Yeah. Okay, t- the comparisons to Moon Safari and Air are obvious given Defender Rose, as I said. But there's another artist and another album that I think was influenced by this song. And you might think it odd when I say this. Dove's first album, mm-hmm. particularly something like Fire Sweet, which opens that album. No, I, I can see exactly where you're coming from because Fire Sweet does have that similar scope to it. Mm-hmm. It's um, another one that really strikes a chord with me. As I said, I always find it really arresting. It is a stunning song. Yeah, 
I don't have really anything more to add to what's been said before. It's a stunning piece of work. And we've we've talked sensibly for a number of songs. So I'm going to have to undercut it just to add that I didn't necessarily pick up on it. But within this song, according to Wiki, Dave McDonald played the nose flute. <laughs> there you go. I'm, yeah. like, I'm not even sure what a nose flute is. No, absolutely no idea. But like in my head, it is ramming, ramming like one of those blue recorders up your nose. <laughs> Giving it, giving it the footballer's blow. That's like something Ralph Wiggum would do. <laughs> I mean, you said you wanted to undercut it, and uh, I have. you have. <laughs> oh God! Um, uh, should we go on to pedestal? <laughs> yeah, sure. Right. So, um, I don't have a huge amount to say about pedestal. I've got to say, I, I certainly have no no facts or or quotes to read out about it, which I know is unusual for me and will be blessed relief to you, Kevin, and the listeners as well. <laughs> um, what do you think? Again, on the list, listen-throughs. No, listen-through <laughs> for fuck's sake! <laughs> How can it be a plural of a... F- I, I decided because you got annoyed by it before that I'm going to continue using that now. You're a fucking prick. Yes, yes I am. <laughs> Um, so I wasn't quite sure about the song, but I think it gets hugely elevated by the kind of jazz trumpet solo <laughs> in the middle. And it is it is really beautifully layered. Um, so, Tim, I presume you're about to say the same thing. I really like the jazz trumpet solo. It's not what you're <laughs> expecting, but it elevates the song. <laughs> so it's built around the bass line. But again, you've got the guitar part, you know, just ushering things along. Yes, the the the, the trumpet solo is is great. It works really well. It is a bit of a come down from the last two. It's not to say I don't like it. I just don't have that much to say about it. No, I think I think that's I think that's fair. Okay, shall we grab a biscuit? <laughs> not a soggy one. <laughs> okay. Do not Google. <laughs> Well, anyone that's ever fucking listened to Fred Durst will know exactly what you're talking <laughs> well, about yeah. anyway. Because we want to bring in the Fred Durst crowd. Listen, spe- <laughs> speaking of musical cities, sadly, I can't find another, another act from Jacksonville. So uh, those who share a uh, curiosity for all things Durst will have to wait for us to cover any <laughs> <Biscuit> material. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, biscuit. I mean... This is all about the the Johnny Ray sample, yeah? Yeah. So it's a sample of I'll Never Fall In Love Again by Johnny Ray, slowed down to 16 RPM. This song I do have a quote for. Jeff Barrow said, we had the song, we had the beat, we had the parts, but we just didn't have the thing that was the other instrument on top. I had Johnny Ray and it just worked. I had to slow it down with my hands to make it fit. I mean... It works so well, that sample. I mean, this this song, it, it sounds like the opening to a 50s noir. Yeah. And the way it, the stripped back nature of it and the simplicity again, Yeah, it just works so well. Yeah, it does. So aside from the sample, you've got that sort of really moody, that really ominous drum beat. You've got mm-hmm. the really simple organ part, which is so effective and complements dovetails with Beth Gibbons' voice really well. Again, 
this has got such clear comparisons with what Uncle were doing on science fiction. Mm-hmm. And also, for me at least, uh, what at the end of the decade, the Dust Brothers were doing on the Fight Club soundtrack. Yeah. It's a great piece of music. It's it's really simple. It's, an again, ominous, menacing. All these adjectives we've used to describe the tone of this album. But with that cinematic quality that comes with it, good things. Yeah. It is all the good things. We're not doing Blink-182, Kev. <laughs> no, I do not want to do Blink-182 because they're shy. We should do a punk season. No, <laughs> I, am not, I am not listening to some 41. <laughs> no, nor am I. Fair point. <laughs> okay, are we ready to go on to the last track already? I, be- I believe that we are. Glory Box. So it was the third single. It was released on the 3rd of January 1995. It reached number 31 in the UK, number seven in Iceland. I'm not really surprised that this was a big hit in Iceland. <laughs> and it reached number 41 on, come on, Kev, let's do it, the Eurochart Hot 100. <laughs> I mean, it's got a very, very prominent, very, very famous sample of Isaac Hayes here. So the, the main baseline of the main beat is, is Ike's rap too. Isaac Hayes actually gets a writing credit on the song. That's not the only sample. It also has a sample from Clarence Wheeler and the Enforcers instrumental cover of Hey Jude. Uh, Didn't realise that. Yeah, it's only a very small sample, but yeah, Mm -hmm. it's there. So Jeff Barrow, uh, it was an Isaac Hayes sample. Sometimes in space, you just find something and I haven't heard it used on another track before. It's just purity, really. That's the loop. Uh, what's to say about Glory Box? So, like, the song itself, it sounds like the opening to a Bond film. The orchestration is so lush. Beth Gibbons' kind of loose, jazz-inflected uh, mm. vocals yeah. are amazing. The, the chorus just works so well. Like, everything comes together. All the sounds create this beautiful soundscape and the middle eight has a fucking brilliant solo the guitar solo is great but then the breakdown as well before the end where you've just got the massive drums that come in so you talked about the voice and Lucia's is a fantastic way of putting it it's a style that like her or not uh, i'm somewhat ambivalent i must say rasheen murphy spent a career trying to recreate that style of singing so this is seen, and it's it's got a sultry sound to it, okay? Fair yeah, enough. without question. But it's very much seen as a sort of seductive, sexy song. I mean, it's not about that at all. No, but it's her, um, it's Beth Gibbons' vocals, and I think yeah. the video plays probably a part in that as well. Yeah. Like she's a, a 50 seductress. Femme fatale. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So it all, it all kind of comes together. So yeah. it gives it this... A sexy vibe. The, the, the song actually isn't. It, it's not a sexy song. Well, well, I, the sound is is sexy. I, I I think it's really clever juxtaposing that sound with the messages. It it's a song about breaking down archetypal masculine and feminine roles. That's what it's about. You know. It, 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 so mm-hmm. I talked about non literal lyrics, and these aren't exactly literal, but they're nearly that. So don't you stop being a man. Just take a little look. So a little tenderness, no matter if you cry. Give me a reason to love you. 
give me a reason to be a woman. I just want to be a woman. That is absolutely about it's okay for a fella to be emotional and to open up. Mm -hmm. And it's okay yeah. for a woman to be strong and to be powerful. It's fantastic. And the lyrical messages juxtaposed with that sound make it all the more accomplished and clever and intelligent and acerbic, actually. Oh, yes. I mean, like, okay, we've both said it's, it's not a song about seduction. It, you can't have an Isaac Hayes sample and it not be a sexy song. So It's the funny thing about it is that it has a seductive sound to it, but yeah. it lyrically isn't, isn't yeah. so. And uh, let's be clear, Ike's rap is a really sexy song. Well, you, I, as you say, Isaac Hayes, <laughs> um, yeah. pure soul butter. Yes, indeed. So the, that guitar part, you've talked about the guitar solo, but even the... Even the riff in the chorus mm -hmm. and the way the tremolo bar just gives it that that sort of warped, off kilter, disarming sound. Again, it's there's ending big and there's ending with something that is just breathtaking, and that's what they've done here. Yeah, they've gone day in their life. <laughs> yeah, they have. They absolutely have. Um, I think we both quite like Glory Box. Yeah, it's it's not bad. No, it's not bad at all. But with that, in a flash, we have reached the end of Dummy. We have. Do you want to hear some reviews? Yes, I think we should. All right, then. So in his review at the time, Stephen Dalton wrote in The NME that this is, without question, a sublime debut album, but so very, very sad. Dummy unspools with melancholic majesty. From one angle, its languid, slow-beat blues clearly occupy to soulmates' massive attack. But from another, these are avant-garde, ambient moonscapes of a ferociously experimental nature. In other words, seriously spooky shit. I mean, aside from the distinctly NME sign-off, I think that's pretty much spot on. What I would say is... I mean, that's, as you say, it's, it's a really NME uh, way to finish it. But it is, it is decent. In the all music sort of retrospective of the of the album, it says Portishead's album debut is a brilliant, surprisingly natural synthesis of claustrophobic spy soundtracks, dark breakbeats inspired by frontman Jeff Barrow's love of hip hop, and a vocalist in the classic confessional singer songwriter mold. Better than any album before it, Dummy merged merged the pinpoint precise productions of the dance world with pop hallmarks like great songwriting and excellent vocal performances. Yeah, nice. Couple more before we get to you know who because yeah. yeah he's back he's back this week. Don't worry, and he's and next week too. So um, I told you not to get used to his absence. <laughs> uh, so uh, Sharon O'Connell in Melody Maker at the time she said, "Dummy is music noir for a movie not yet made." Speaks to a point you, you said earlier. A perfect creamy mix of ice cool and infraheat that is desperate, desolate, and driven by a huge emotional hunger, but also warmly confiding. Pretty well said that. Yeah, um, I think the, the use of the word desolate there as well is um yes. it's really clever. I mean, to use a, a quite tortured analogy, if you think of the grand vistas in the like John Ford Westerns. Mm -hmm. where there's an absolutely huge image being presented before you, but it's quite desolate. I think that is, a, yeah. is an analogy of the music that you, you, you get in these, in these songs. A very, very good observation. And again, perhaps that is where the influences of the likes of Morricone mm -hmm. comes to the fore. 
Okay, in uh, another retrospective, this time for Pitchfork, Philip Sherborne in 2017 wrote, it's possible to hear in Dummy a collection of gratifyingly sad but sexy gestures, gestures, sorry, not gestures, and plenty of Portishead's I want to see a sexy jester. (laughs) I mean, Harley Quinn. Well, okay, but like, jester to me is like the hey nonny no uh, kind of... (laughs) He's saying Ophelia wasn't a sexy Shakespeare character. <laughs> this is unusually highbrow for us. Well, I'm about to bring it very lowbrow because, like, the traditional jester's outfit makes me think of it's a knockout or uh, rent a ghost. Well, <laughs> so we managed to go from Ophelia to rent a ghost. <laughs> yeah, indeed. I, Stuart Hall, noted nonce. Well, quite. <laughs> I cannot believe my mispronunciation of the word gesture is going to stay in the show. (laughs) But there you go. (laughs) Anyway, back to Pitchfork. Plenty of Portishead's followers, Lamb, Morchiba, Olive, Alpha, Mono, Hooverphonic, Sneaker Pimps, and dozens of other acts forever lost to the cutout bin of history did just that. But style, stylishness, is only the beginning None of Portishead's imitators understood that it's not the blue notes or the mood lighting that made it tick. It's the pockets of emptiness inside. Yeah, bang on. Yeah, can't argue with that. All right, I know the suspense is killing you guys. What about Nobby? He's going to say something fucking stupid, isn't he? I I mean, yes, (laughs) but mercifully, uh, he doesn't say very much. So he awarded it a rating to signify that it was a worthy effort that consumers attuned to its overriding aesthetic or individual vision may well like. I've no idea what he thinks that means, but okay. And he said merely that the album was Sade for androids. Fuck off, you prick. He's such a bellend. I mean, at least it was short. Mercifully. <laughs> I mean, it seems at least in this case that absence does not make the heart grow fonder. <laughs> no, because he can't help but being an insufferable prick. What the fuck does Sade for androids mean? Well, I mean, maybe we need to listen to, to Sade at some point. No, we don't. No, but that's, <laughs> that's the point that I'm getting at. Sade to, to me and probably you is, is synonymous with... Uh, yuppie wankers uh, trying to get off. Yeah. Like you stick smooth operator on and trying to um, boff someone. It's Clive Owen in Chancer. Yeah. You could imagine um, you could imagine Bateman st- sticking a bit of Sade on. No, he likes Huey Lewis in the news <laughs> and Phil Collins. Susu Studio. <laughs> We've hit the cultural gamut here. Bateman, Rent-A-Ghost, <laughs> Ophelia. <laughs> So just before we move on from from Chris Gow, I watched an interview with him on YouTube to feel, like to to get the have we, are we doing this guy a disservice? Are we being unnecessarily cruel to a seventy nine year old fella? Um, no, we're not. He's a prick. Well, it's it's that whole thing of I'm a critic and that's an art form. And it's like critically appraising stuff has its place and is in you know. But you are ultimately not a fucking creator. I mean, I I agree, but. Be careful, because we are literally recording a podcast in which we criticise other people's music. Yeah, I've just realised that. I'm writing. Can we cut that? No. <laughs> You're not going. Oh, dear. Should we talk about the legacy of Dummy? 
I mean, just on as a really simple thing, just looking at what it beat to win the 95 Mercury. Fuck me. Go on. Definitely maybe to bring you my love by PJ Harvey and Max and K. Yeah, phenomenal. They're they're, you know, three very good albums. Yeah, it's um no, I'm not gonna spoil what I think of that, but it's testament to the success of the album and how it struck a chord and how it stood out, even from other artists that were their contemporaries in that trip hop scene. So obviously we've spoken about the commercial success, we've spoken about the awards, we did all that when we did Top Trumps. It's one of the most influential albums of the 90s. As I mentioned when I went through the Pitchfork review, I just countless imitation bands that mm-hmm. that appeared in their in their wake, as happens with with any other popular breakthrough act or popular scene, you know, it's not unique to this. But what's interesting is the way the band perceived that success and and the people that were buying the album. So I just want to read a quote from Jeff Barrow in an interview with the New York Times 2019. People consider it a dinner party album. I mean, that was tough to take. Those people bought the records and made the band big, but it's a double-edged sword. At the same time, we absolutely fucking hate it. It's nice when people were into best stories, but in the sense of people actually having a dinner party and putting our music on, I want to go in with a baseball bat and smash the fuck out of their fondue set. <laughs> Thank you for buying the record, but then I think you've got the wrong idea of it. <laughs> yeah. No, he's he's exactly right because he is. dinner party music is is music you can put on in the background and it not offend anyone. That is more cheaper. Well, now we we talked about we talked about air and its use in wanky bars. I would argue, and obviously we had our discussion about air and everything like that, that that is more dinner party music than this. Because this is not a settling piece of music. I've never no. felt when I've been having some scram and people have been around, oh, I'll just stick dummy on. In fact, I would argue that the album we're going to do next week is probably more conducive to that than mm-hmm. this album. Yeah, you're right. I'd also never stick homework on at a dinner party, Kev, but uh, we know which one you preferred. <laughs> because it's not their best album. So? It's still better than Moods of Heart, anyway. <laughs> we're going back a long time. <laughs> yeah, we're really going back into um, our history. Uh, but no, you're right. It's an unsettling collection of, of songs that deserves to be listened to and to have attention paid to it. And that sounds really fucking pretentious. I know, guys, how how you must be screaming down. You're like, oh, fuck off. Let people enjoy it however they want. And there's a fair point in that, to give you credit mm-hmm. or to give myself credit for imagining what you're shouting down the radio <laughs> at. You know what I mean? Consume and enjoy music however you want. It's not for others to tell you how you should be listening to it. But there's a lot more to this than just some pleasant sounds to have on the background. So there was a catch-22 in terms of the success the album brought them, but the perception of of what the band were. They also felt the pressure to, as bands often do, coming off the back of success, to go out on tour and to go back into the studio and, and, and do a second album. And that had its toll on on the band's mental health. Jeff Barrow again. I was doing press as well as the talk. And to add to that, the success of the band and the interviews kind of really got on top of me. Mental health issues weren't really talked about back then. I was kind of being sick a lot. I was a bit bulimic and I had massive anxiety. So when we were into the second record, I was already shook to pieces, which is kind of heartbreaking, but 
actually refreshing to hear someone speak so starkly about their lived experience. Mm -hmm. It might sound strange for me to say refreshing, but you don't often hear that level of honesty. You don't often hear that level of honesty from male musicians Mm. and being able to talk so openly about how it basically fucked him up is healthy that we need to, we need to be able to have these conversations. Yeah, you're quite right. We need to be able to have these conversations and and fair play to Jeff Barrow for opening up like that. I mean, you can certainly hear that unease even more so than on Dummy Mm -hmm. on the second album, the self-titled second album. Yeah, if if possible, it's it's even darker. And the thing is, it's not a bad album. It's just... I think it's a great album. I think the problem is Dummy was so instantly accessible. Mm-hmm. The Porter's Head is, it's a tougher listen. Yeah, it is. And you've got to work a bit on it. It's not an instant, you one listen, this is sound. Like, yeah, you ha- that's it, fair. It takes a few listens to, to get into it and the themes and stuff. And I think that's what it suffered from. Well, you say suffered from. I mean, it still sold well over 2 million copies. It, it reached number two in the UK, it reached number 21 in the US. So it's, it was still a massive success. I agree with everything you've said, that you've got to work. It's a tougher listen. It's a much edgier listen. Whether that was a reflection of their state of mind and of their circumstances, or it was a reaction to the coffee table music sort of vibe that we talked about a minute ago, or as I suspect, a bit of both, it's certainly a lot edgier. But in my opinion, at least, it is a really, really, really good album. It is a really good album. So after that, they went on an extended hiatus, um, basically concentrating on solo projects and other work. Back in 2005, they performed for the first time in seven years. In 2006, they they posted two new tracks on their MySpace page. Wow. <laughs> I mean, so 2006. Well, but the thing is, yeah, exactly. But MySpace is a social media craze that I was both too old for and yet still sounds incredibly dated. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, In 2008, as you sort of alluded to earlier, they released their third album, which was imaginatively titled Third. A lot less trip-hop sounding, which, given you, what, nearly 15 years after, well, 14 years after the first album, it's not a surprise. Much more Krautrock influenced, which, to go back to um, what we were talking about on Can't Get Out of My Head, it will not surprise anyone to learn that I'm a really big fan of Third. I think it's phenomenal. I really like Third. Like the, the opening track's fucking great. It's fucking brilliant. And again, it was it was it was another big success for so the third album of theirs that reached number two in the UK. It reached number one on the Billboard Alternative Chart in the US. It reached number nine in Australia, number three in, in Europe, and it was certified gold in the UK. So there's still an appetite or there was in 2008 at least, still an appetite for Portishead. And I think that refusal to get into that cycle of album, tour, album, tour, every three years, really has fed that, actually. Mm -hmm. So since 2008, they've they've never officially split up. They reunited occasionally. As you said, in 2013, they headlined the other stage at Glastonbury. Now, you were at Glastonbury in 2013. Did you see that set? Yes, I did. They were great. They were so good. 
in 2015 uh, for the soundtrack to the film High Rise. They covered ABBA's SOS. I mean, I haven't heard a Portis head cover of SOS. No, but I I need to hear that. That that sounds. Do you know what I'd really like if they if they were to cover another ABBA song? Winner takes it all. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, because mm. it's a belter anyway. Yes, it is a it is a belter. I mean, as we've said, you know, you may want to denigrate ABBA, but they wrote some fucking bangers. Do you know what we should do ABBA at some point because they were they were absolutely bangers. Yeah, we should. We should probably do them against the Bee Gees as well. You know, because. Very similar. Oh, yeah. I like that clash. Okay. So will they ever reform? Maybe. I think it's so. In that Observer interview I mentioned right at the start, Adrian Utley said, it's all up in the air. If the wind blows hard enough, you never know. I really like that. As I said, I like they've got that confidence to go their separate ways, to, to be their own individual people and follow their own individual careers. But, They've never said, no, we split up. It's never been acrimonious. It's like, we'll work together when we want to. And, you know, all respect to them for that. Mm-hmm. With a, without a question, just because I've got um, the uh, wiki posted um, thing, and I think I can't help. You know that I love ephemera. You know that I love uh, nonsense and undercutting your serious points. So talking about the various festivals that they performed that in summer 2011, they um, performed a... Exit, Benicassim, uh, Roskilde, and the Super Box Super Rock Festival. <laughs> Which now is shot straight to the top of the list of festivals I need to attend. <laughs> wow. It is still going. I'm assuming it's somewhere in Portugal. Yes. Um, as of May 2021, the 26th edition of Super Box Super Rock is scheduled to take place. Well, it should have taken place by now. And who was supposed to play? Hot Chip and um, Foles. But where is it? Portugal. Wait, what? Portugal's a big country, Kev. Come on. I'm that big. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot believe we've now descended to you live reading Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> Rock and roll. <laughs> This is under no <laughs> circumstances this being edited out and it's likely to find its way onto Twitter as well. <laughs> um, oh, locations God. various. Currently held okay. at Hidadi do Quebeco de Flauta. Sound. Yeah, because I'm, go. as you can tell, <laughs> fluent, fluent in the Portuguese. Portuguese. <laughs> uh, I apologise wholeheartedly to our Brazilian listenership. Although you've got to enjoy the pronunciation of do Quebeco. <laughs> Speaking of our Brazilian listeners, he's never told us if Daniel O'Donnell's popular over there. I mean, I have got Wiki open, so I can just Google Daniel O'Donnell. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Best song, worst song. Go on. Okay, so It's a Fire, I think, is the is the weakest song. For me, as I said, at the time when we went through it, it was a bit of a nothing. It doesn't really go anywhere. It's not. It's not particularly offensive. It just... It never grabbed me, pulls me in like the other songs do. But I will hold my hand up and say there may be a little bit of bias around that because it was, it's not a song that I'm as au fait with as the rest of the album. Yeah, okay. What about your best? Best song. So I'm not going to be the obvious, the obvious person and pick one of the singles. I'm going to pick Rhodes because it has always been my favourite song on the album. It close, to be honest, it's a Nats widgie. Is Wandering Star. I love Wandering Star. I think it's beautiful in the way it's balanced. But Rhodes, 
everything about it it's sumptuous in it in its sound and its lyricism and it's it's balance it's it's a beautiful piece of music is right (laughs) (laughs) ditto on best song yes glory box is magnificent yes sour times is a brilliant song as is numb but wandering star as i said it resonates with me deeply but it is Rhodes. you're right for everything you said it's an astonishing piece of work mm-hmm. and it's the best track on the album. So there you go. As for worst song, different track to you, but for similar reasons, it feels harsh calling it the worst song because I don't dislike it, but pedestal, it just, it's the only track on the album that feels like album filler. And so for that reason alone, I'm selecting it as my worst track. That's fair. Uh, okay. That about wraps it up for this week, doesn't it? I think we are um, pretty much wrapped up. Okay, so obviously next week you are going to take us through Massive Attacks Protection. Before then, what's been going on in Twitterland? So if you're a fan of excusing uh, the murder of a journalist because your club might sign some players, you might have a Saudi Arabian flag on your Twitter bio. Sports Wash FC. Oh, fucking hell. (laughs) whilst enjoying sports washing and apparently becoming an expert in Middle Eastern geopolitics you may want to um, check out our Twitter page at Clash Album if you are a fan of carefully curated non-political you may want to check out our Insta at Clash Album or if you're resolutely old school and you want to send us some abuse related to the fact that you've been taken over and you are part of essentially a massive thing to try and make it a reprehensible regime seem all right, you may want to send us an email at albumclash at gmail.com. I might have an agenda this week. Um, Apropos of nothing, Kev, what is your position on the impending takeover of Newcastle United football? Big fan. Big fan. (laughs) So, yeah, um, please get in touch with the show if you can survive the quagmire that is Twitter uh, or just go on Instagram because that's where everyone looks at our stuff. Instagram's where nice people go. It is where nice people go. And bots, (laughs) seemingly as well. (laughs) Like, the bots love us. Um, Thanks for listening, guys. Get involved. Leave ratings. Leave reviews. Tell us what you want us to go through. Uh, otherwise, we'll just keep talking shite about rent a ghost. <laughs> <laughs> or if you bang into the rent a ghost content, then let us know <laughs> yeah, let because exactly. because we'll do more. We and trust indeed. me, trust me, we really, really will. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyway, until next week, this has been Album Clash. Thank you for listening. I've been Tim. I've been an absolute idiot, cool cat. <laughs> <laughs> Take care of yourself. See you now. Bye bye.